people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Welcome to Twelve Rules for What. It's a podcast about the far right, fascism, and anti-fascism. My name is Alex, and today I'm joined by Kai Heron and Alex Heffron. Um, we're going to talk about um, a lot of stuff: the Dutch farmer protests that have been kicking off recently in the Netherlands, um, the far right attitudes towards land and food and food production, and also, I suppose, generally have a general conversation about um, the rural as a category and the less relationship to that. Welcome, guys. Hey, thank you very much for having us on the podcast. So before we start, who are you and uh, why are you qualified to talk about um, this stuff? Oh, why are we qualified? Um, so my name's Kai Heron. I'm a lecturer in politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. Uh, I work on environmental politics and political theory with a focus on uh, land struggles and rural movements. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Alex. Um, yeah, I've been a big fan of this podcast since the beginning, so it's a pleasure to be on here. Um, I am a first-generation farmer on a small, uh, mixed, cooperative farm in the west of Wales, and I write a bit about agrarian politics from a left perspective. Great. Um, okay, so people might not have seen because there's a lot going on in the UK right now and people are kind of wrapped up in all the hell politics that are happening here. Um, so briefly, um, if people have just seen like gifts of Dutch farmers spraying manure over various government buildings, what's going on in Holland right now with these farmer protests? So um, the, the basics is that um, some new EU regulations came in a few years ago, I think it was in 2019, relating to nitrogen pollution in the EU. And it's found that the Netherlands is over the environmental levels, uh, the legal limits. So recently they've been bringing in um, new regulations and new guidelines and sort of um, looking at how to reduce that. And what that means in the Netherlands is that they're going to see a large reduction in the numbers of livestock farms there. The main contribution to nitrogen pollution in the Netherlands is from uh, animal manure, but also from artificial fertilisers used in farming, uh, also some from cars. Um, and what's not always kind of talked about is how, uh, the impact of feed as well. Uh, the Netherlands imports a huge amount of animal feed. Um, soya from the Americas, uh, the Netherlands is one of the world's um, largest importers of that. And the Netherlands has the highest density of uh, livestock in the world and it's the world's sort of currently the world's second largest producer of food uh, the world's second largest exporter of food even um, I, th I think that's based on value it depends exactly how you uh, how you look at that um, and this has led to a backlash in the Netherlands recently because a lot of farmers are worried they have brought out these um, nature protected zones I think they're called in the EU and farms in those regions you might be looking at as many as three quarters of farms having to reduce numbers or close in those areas um, and some farms might have to lose around a third of their livestock numbers and the problem for the farmers there is that means that their businesses will no longer be profitable so there's been a big reaction and a lot of uh, farmers have been out on the streets protesting, 
I think the biggest protest had around 40,000 farmers out. They were setting fire to hay bales, spreading slurry, but they were also doing this outside politicians' houses. And this has probably divided public opinion in the Netherlands, and I think by most was probably seen as going a bit too far. Um, yeah, that's a sort of yeah brief kind of overview of what's been going on there recently. There's a kind of, um, I suppose, populist framing around these protests of like the little guy, the little guy farmer um, standing up against big government or kind of the diktats of the EU and stuff. Um, obviously, you know, globally, um, food production is, is largely done by very, very poor people who are dis- often dispossessed from their land um, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yet in the, in the global north, um, farmers and you know not the the kind of peasant class they were maybe 300 400 years ago what kind of positions do farmers have before we get into the far right stuff what position do like i suppose european or american farmers have in um, modern uh, capitalist economies yeah i'll have a stab at that it's a it's a great question so uh just to begin of why so you're absolutely right that they're framing themselves as a populist movement right that has had EU regulations imposed on them. And in a way, there's some truth to that. So I want to recognize that before I then go on to their kind of their proper class position. So there is definitely, as Alex is saying, some truth to the claim that this uh, attempt to reduce emissions, in particular uh, pollution through nitrogen pollution, was imposed, I think you can say that, without proper consultation on farmers in the Netherlands to dramatically reduce nitrogen pollution, right? Um, with some consultation, but not sufficient consultation, which gives opens the door to a right-wing reaction that we're going to talk about, I imagine, a bit later on. But they, yeah, very much like to frame themselves as the little guy, a kind of um, agrarian, smallhold family farmer protest that is, you know, just being picked on by a globalist elite. And that in itself is not quite the case. And so we to understand why not, you need to go into the, the class composition of farming and the political economy of farming in the global north, which is rather complex. But I'll start by saying it, it's, not, um, it's not a peasant protest, right? And it's not a uh, populist protest, I wouldn't say. I, I think the best way to describe it would be that it's a petty, petty commodity producing protest. So these are small commodity producing businesses and business owners who occupy a contradictory position within the political economy. So on the one hand, they hire and exploit laborers, right? So whether that's seasonal labor from say Southern or Eastern Europe, or whether that's uh, local populations to do seasonal picking or farm work. On the other hand, they are exploited by big agricultural firms. And there there are eight big agricultural firms in the Netherlands that participate in this. And they are subject to things like indebtedness through organizations like Robobank, who are a Dutch lender to farmers. Um, So they're kind of caught in this position where they're exploited on one end by larger capital and they exploit workers. That's the first step on that. And then you mentioned the global north, global south divide, and that's really key. So most farms in the global north, in the EU at least, are beneficiaries of a common agricultural policy and a subsidy system. Not to go too far into this, that subsidy system redistributes value and wealth to farmers to help them be competitive and to keep producing food, right? 
a lot of that value we learn from anti-imperialist scholars like, say, the Patniks or John Smith or Samir Amin is captured from the global south through work and labor done in the global south and then redistributed in the global north in various ways. One of those ways being subsidies and subsidy regimes. Yeah. But those subsidies don't necessarily stop farms getting into debt. And in fact, many farms are in debt. Um, partly because they constantly need to compete with each other and expand, and partly because, and I'm, I'm sorry for going deep dive into political economy of farming here, but of overproduction in the system. So we simply produce too much food, but we specifically produce too much dairy and too much meat, and this drives down the cost of uh, food, which is good for the capitalist political economy as a whole, but it means that farmers receive less money for what they produce than they would like. So you'll often see petty commodity producing farmers blame, for example, um, customers for refusing to pay more for their food or blame things like the big supermarkets for giving them too little money for their food. So they, the short version of this is they occupy this very contradictory position within the global political economy. Alex, you, part, you partly occupy this position, so you can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's tricky because... Farmers are under increasing pressure. The costs of production have risen massively over the last 12 months. So the, the main ones being the cost of diesel has gone up loads. The cost of fertilizer has gone through the roof and the cost of feed has gone up. It, it goes up and down. It, it depends really where you are with that. But generally the cost of production are going up. And obviously a lot of the power when it comes to the price of food and what farmers are paid is with retailers like supermarkets and food processors um and for a lot of farmers they're just going to struggle to be able to produce food cheap enough in order to stay in business so you you got some farmers who their their contract say with their milk buyer is um, linked to their cost of production, so they might get paid one pence or two pence more than their cost of production. But then you've got other farmers where they're paid a flat rate or they're paid depending according to the, the market rates at the time. And as cost of production rise, obviously it's gonna, it goes into a point where they're now losing money for every litre of milk, say, that they produce. So a lot of farming, by necessity, is dependent on subsidies. Um, when you look at the data, it doesn't look great. You know, at least half of farms in Wales, for example, like need that subsidy in order to continue as a business. So tied in with all this at the minute is the new changes that are coming in in the UK uh, post-Brexit around subsidies. And it's kind of been handled pretty badly, as you could imagine and expect at the moment. And there were different systems in the different nations of the UK um so in wales for example we still haven't had the details of what it will be like we're still in the consultation phase so there's a lot of uncertainty around england there's a bit more information out there but it's not fully certain yet so you've got this in uk context you've got this uncertainty uh playing into it that isn't the case for netherlands i i don't know where the uk uh, eu subsidy scheme is going it does look like it will be also moving towards a, a so-called payments for ecosystem services model. Um, but as it stands right now, I don't think there's been any major changes in the EU. 
but yeah, in, in the British context, looking across the water then to Netherlands and seeing this, it's sort of um, stoking anxieties over here, I guess. Um, and whilst we're not seeing these protests over here yet, I think in a couple of years' time, when the subsidy regime does particularly change, because say in Wales, uh, they're going to keep the current system in place for another couple of years, and then it's going to more and more transition over to payments for things like tree planting, improving soils and so on, and uh, planting wildflower meadows and, and that sort of thing. Once that kicks in, a lot of farms are going to lose a lot of income because even this new system, it will still benefit the biggest farmers, the biggest landowners, because you know the, the, the larger your farm, the more trees you can plant, the more money you're still going to get. So it doesn't really resolve any of the issues for smaller farmers. So there's, a, there's increased competition and also factored into that in the British context now is the new trade deals. So importing food cheaper. So for example, um, you know, seeing uh, imported lamb, say from New Zealand, without the tariffs on, it means it would be cheaper than producing Welsh lamb. Um, and that will see more farms here go out of business and again, increase this uh, tension, this building. Yeah, that's, Alex, that's really, really useful. Um, the other thing to emphasize on that is maybe about the political economy of farming is that it inclines like most businesses and most sectors of capital towards monopoly. So as these smallhold farmers go out of business, it's fairly reasonable to expect the larger farms who are benefiting from, say, efficiency gains can purchase that land and consolidate land into larger and larger holdings. Um, this seems to be pretty much what is happening in the Netherlands. So it's already clear that smaller producers, still petty commodity producers, but they'll be the least likely to be able to afford these measures of reducing nitrogen pollution, which then leaves this land available. It's quite likely that that land will be purchased by other producers, but we're going to, we'll get into when we start talking about the right, other speculative ideas about what that land is going to be used for as part of what this movement uses and argues about. Yeah, that brings us nicely onto my next question. You know, when I was doing some research for this episode and watching various interviews by these spokespeople of the, of the Dutch farmers, and I was kind of struck about how easily they slipped into quite obvious far-right conspiracy theories and, and memes and motifs, you know, stuff like the Great Replacement and the Great Reset. Um, you know, one um, spokesperson, I can't remember her name, but, you know, she says they're taking away property because they see a future for us in what will be completely dependent on the state. We bugs, they own your land. And obviously, the whole bug-eating thing is a massive meme across a large swaths of the online far-right, you know, part of this kind of global homo agenda of, you know, bug-eating liberals making us get away from red meat and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what role have these conspiracies um, played in the protest? Do they give a kind of coherent ideology to it, or is it more a kind of opportunistic thing to appeal to a wider base of support uh, beyond the Netherlands? Yeah, it... There's, I, th I think there's both going on. There is opportunism being seen with the far right jumping all over the, the protests. Um, you're seeing that within the Netherlands um, with some of their leading far right figures giving interviews to people like GB News, to Fox News, saying some pretty horrendous things, um, blaming the, uh, the, the land grabs that are going on or the, 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 the expropriation of farmers' land on immigrants that, you know, you, you see them talking about um, there's 100,000 immigrants moving there every year, one of them was saying, and they're going to, you know, use this land for building refugee housing and so on. 
Um, but it's not just the far right leaders saying that, it is also the farm leaders. So there is a, a large membership organization called the Farmers Defense Force. And I believe they have 40,000 members, I think I read somewhere. It's one of the large ones. There, there are two main large groups involved in the protests. There's them and another one, which is slightly more moderate, that has started to separate themselves from the FDF. Uh, called Agraktia, I, I don't know exactly how you pronounce that. Um, but yeah, the, the Farmers Defence Force, their leader has been also talking about immigrants taking the land, that is part of a globalist communist plot, that the communists are in work with the corporations and they're working together to expropriate farmers' land for, yeah, this sort of uh, green vegan agenda. That That's the kind of thing that's going on. So it's there is opportunism going on from the far right, but it does seem to be coming from within the farmers' movement itself as well. Um, there's plenty of, you know, conservatives within farming and the rural. Um, and, you know, as as we know through, like, can, what um, Dave Renton talks about with the convergence of the centre-right and the far right, I think you can see that quite clearly here with the farmers' protests, that they're coalescing around this, uh, scapegoating of immigrants and environmentalists and city people and green and, and vegan and so on. Okay, so it's a good question and the way you frame it is really important. So there's, um, whether it's a coherent ideology or whether there's opportunism, and on the one hand, there is opportunism from people like Tucker Carlson in the US who has supported the protests um, to kind of push his normal, you know, his, his agenda, his established agenda in the US. And then there's people like Marine Le Pen, who are definitely opportunistically jumping on this because it speaks to this anti-EU agenda. The EU are imposing these green agendas onto farmers, and so she can manipulate that and use that for her own advantage. But beyond that, I don't think I would, I'm kind of inclined to think it's not a coherent ideology. And instead, these conspiracy theories rush in to try and make sense of a situation where uh, a coherent ideology is lacking to make sense of what is happening. So when Alex and I think about these things, our traditional thought, you know, we're drawn to Marxist political economy and Marxist perspectives, and that gives us an anchor in the world. And then there are liberal perspectives, conservative, Christian, whatever it may be, there's an absence of that in this case. And so these conspiracy theories kind of rush into that void and help people make sense of it. But it means that if you're new to looking at the Dutch farmers protest, it is going to seem absolutely mad. There's like a grab bag of different pro things, right? So you're you're right. There's this line of they're going to make us eat bug sandwiches. That's quite a common refrain. There's definitely this idea that they're going to steal the land to welcome immigrants and build immigrant houses, a kind of great replacement theory. Um, there's the Great Reset which was you know, an agenda pushed by um, the World Economic Forum that was immediately adopted by the right as a kind of redo of the Great Replacement Theory. That of course, un under all of this is this anti-Semitic trope. They're going to do whatever this kind of nebulous and nefarious abstract global elite who are pulling all of the strings. But it really is just a series of different conspiracies that converge to try and explain what is happening all of them, I think it's fair to say, are right wing uh, and are beginning to converge into a coherent ideology. And I think that's what we need to be most worried about, right, is if this assembles into something um, that is more coherent, that I think we, we should be particularly concerned. Yeah, and I, I think that 
that your point about it being a kind of sense-making thing and a, an explanatory model is really important, actually. Um, and it, you know, just on the Great Reset thing as well, I remember a time when Alex Jones was talking about, I think he was like Article 11 of the UN, and he was like, we're all going to live in Hobbit homes and they're going to make us live in green, underground in green bunkers and all this kind of stuff. And it, oftentimes it just kind of floats these, these things, much like I suppose identity politics and work and political correctness, the same thing, the same function cycles through various guises and, and comes back again and again. And, it's, and so I think The Great Reset is just another example of, of that. They've, they've found a, a hook, as it were, and then um, have kind of uh, re, re, revived some, you know, the New World Order, basically, I think is... Uh, that, that's absolutely right. That's what it is. So it's, it's that, com and then in this case, combining Great Reset with some kind of um, green agenda, right, and green transition. Yeah, I think this climate transition point is key here um, because this is the, I think, the wider lesson and what we can observe of what's going on for wider left and radical green politics is that the farmers there are, you know, reacting against what, you know, the, the um, was basically being imposed on them by the state and by the EU. They, they feel hard done by because they're like, well, we've done what you've asked for for all these years. We're the most efficient, you know, there's this meme, wait. If you look at the if certain metrics that you know the Dutch farmers are the most efficient in the world, right? You know, according to a very narrow definition of that, right? But and and they feel hard done by, and I think what's interesting, so they turn into conspiracy theory like the Great Reset, like Great Replacement, because they then they can't really turn to a class analysis because then it becomes more tricky for them. Um, these are small scale capitalists. And it's interesting that they're not focusing on um, large agribusinesses and how they profit from them or retailers or processors. You know, there was one study that was done, I think about a week ago in the Netherlands, showing how they've had loads of money from agribusiness funding these protests and giving them the platforms and so on. So, and there's not been any talk the whole time of farm labourers, migrant labour, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, the people that these farmers are exploiting and their global position in the global food economy. So it, it necessitates a turn to conspiracy theory because how else do they explain what's going on to them in, in, within, whilst trying to protect their position in it, I think. Um, so, they, yeah, it's, then they're not acting as like the vanguard of the, the far right or anything, but they are being... The, the far right are projecting onto them their, you know, sort of bucolic rural ideal that, you know, that they want to the see and the farmers are seeing, I suppose, it's, it's providing them a way of explaining their situation. So one of Tucker Carlson's previous kind of bugbears or kind of topics of interest was the so-called white genocide of, of farmers in South Africa and tax on white landowners um, by, you know, I suppose a rabid black mass who were going to kind of do the complete the final revolution against apartheid um, rule and of course um, Zimbabwe and South Africa have got particular potency for the far right um, as an example of white minority rule um, and in fact you know in the 80s and in the 70s and 80s when struggles were going on in those um, territories um, a bunch of far right people went over there to fight as mercenaries um, which we, we wrote about in our, in our book. Um, are there parallels we can draw between um, white South African farmers and what's happening now with the Dutch farmers, or do you think these are kind of um, 
more different than it's useful to compare? So it's a great question. Um, there's definitely one one commonality, but then it plays out in different contexts and therefore in very different ways. The commonality, as far as I can see it, is that they see a racialized other as a threat to white property, right? So in the case of Dutch protests, that racialized other is immigrants who are going to be housed in new housing that's going to be built on the land that they believe um, the Dutch government is going to reclaim by dispossessing white property owners and white farmers, right? So there's that version and that's, that plays directly into this great reset and a kind of, which is a kind of a, in itself a read of the great replacement as we've discussed. Then if you switch to South Africa or Zimbabwe, then we're dealing with um, obviously settler colonialism and legitimate demands for mm -hmm. land seizures or repayment for land uh, to take land off of, you know, white property owners who dispossessed black land users to get that land. And so then the context becomes quite different. What is similar as well, I guess, aside from that, this defense of white property is this uh, romanticization and naturalization of kind of yeomanry or like a smallhold farmer who is close to nature and represents a kind of bucolic ideal that uh, we should kind of structure society around, right? This kind of pre-industrial romanticized notion of the white man on the land. Uh, Tease me up nicely, actually. Um, <laughs> so I had a question about this kind of yeoman class rural, let's invent a kind of idyllic farming community in our heads and enact it into the world. Um, so yeah, I'm struck by some, you know, kind of visions of farming life on the far right, you know, such as that of a guy called Rolf Gardner, who we wrote in the book, English fascist in the interwar period and after the war as well. It's like they almost wish that industrial capitalism never happened and we can return to some kind of feudal, harmonious, kind of uh, conflictless society in which landlords are kind of benignly extracting a certain amount of rent and um, the, the peasants are happy to work the land for their kind of uh, patriarchal masters and we all live in giant big family household units. Um, and oftentimes, I suppose, rural life is held up as a kind of national symbol, like a true authentic um, um, representation of, of, a, of a national character almost. Um, and I suppose, this, this is a question for the end, but it, it, it came up now. Um, is there a way we can start on the left reframing rural life, reframing the activities of the countryside, including industry and, and farming and, and agricultural production, um, to serve a more liberatory project? Like... Oftentimes, I feel like the left is is tied up in cities and in uh, urban life, um, naturally, because that's where a lot of people are and a lot of, of the working classes as well. But at the same time, I feel like there's a there's a contestation we need to make over the countryside and country life. Uh, okay, so you're going to get long answers from Alex and I. I think this is the reason we started um, working and writing and thinking together are because of it's because of this question. So everything that we've written together. Um, stems in one way or another from the question you're asking so i'm going to i'm going to try and be brief if i can i think one thing to say about this is uh so you've you're rightly right to say that this is a tendency on the right to kind of romanticize uh a kind of back to nature pre-industrial era but I, I also want to flag that it's a real danger in parts of the left and that i don't think People who imagine themselves to be on the left are often aware how close they are to people you discuss in your book, right? These kind of right uh, fascist positions. So yeah, that's a danger and we need to think about that and be conscious of it. Um, then 
how does the left engage in this space and in rural, rural land and protests? It's, it's, I think one thing that's an obvious point would be to say to start taking rural and agrarian issues seriously. You're right. Most uh, leftists, especially in the UK, are focused on cities because that's where we live. And so we tend to think about urban issues and urban projects. It's just by dint of where we are. So start thinking seriously about rural and agrarian issues. Start thinking very seriously about um, what was called and should still be called the contradictions between the town and the country, the way that a, a life in the city is dependent on the extraction of um, wealth and also resources from rural regions. I think that's really important. And then what Alex and I try and do is carve out a, a way of thinking about this that avoids what I, I think of as two traps. So one of those traps is a kind of localist, hyper-localist fetishization of localism uh, with community growing and with, as you said, kind of family farmers back on the land with some kind of benign uh, feudal frontier who let, might own the land. Uh, and so we did a review, for example, of a book called Small Farm Future by Chris Smage that I think is an archetype of this kind of hyper-localist back-to-the-land position. Uh, in that case, it's also wrapped up in this notion of climate collapse that will be forced back to this position because climate collapse will make us go there. So we need to avoid that kind of position, I think. On the other side, uh, I think we're very keen to avoid eco-modernist positions, positions that basically say capitalist agriculture is good, but we need to switch out uh, fossil fuels with green energy and we need to switch out capitalists with workers and everything's good and rosy. Um, so <laughs> since I'm naming names, we'll do that again. Uh, George Monbiot's idea of precision fermentation and the abolition of farming altogether, I think fits into eco-modernism. Uh, Matthew Huber's work when he occasionally writes about agrarian issues is very much about how capitalist property relations are a fetter on the kind of technologies and industrialism we could see if only workers controlled agriculture. Um, so I think we want to avoid those and carve out a space somewhere in the middle. And for inspiration, we look to movements like La Via Campesina, uh, and we look to MST, the Brazilian landless, land, landless movements. And we try and imagine working with people like, uh, inspired by people like Max Isle or the Agrarian South Network, uh, people like Sam Moyo some way of thinking about perhaps uh, agroecological and the term often used is regenerative farming systems in the global north that uh, are not opposed to technological advances but in fact see technology in a broader way and recognize technology as things like um, intercropping or silver pasture is a technology uh, that we need to embrace and come back to it doesn't produce as much profit for capital but it's a more uh, biodiverse and sustainable way of farming the land. And then my final point, and then Alex, I promise I'll, I'll let you come back, come in, is this also entails, and this is somewhat unpopular, I think, on parts of the left, uh, a recognition that feeding ourselves in the future will probably be more labor intensive than feeding ourselves is today. So we have removed labor from the equation of producing our food by using fossil fuels as a highly concentrated source of energy it's very likely that more of us are going to need to be involved in producing our food in the future. That will involve being closer to where our food comes from. And that brings us all the way back around to challenging the division between the town and the country. So imagining bringing food production into cities and bringing people back into the countryside in a way that begins to unravel that kind of contradiction and that tension. There's a whole uh, debate to be had here and unpicked by the left that 
what we hope to do is get people thinking about. Yeah, um, yeah, just building on that and taking in a slightly different direction then is the the challenges facing farmers at the moment. So if you, over the last 20, 30 years, numbers of farms in the UK have roughly halved and farms in that time have roughly doubled, right? So there's a there's been a process of land consolidation for a long time now. And I think we're going to see that really speed up. You know, maybe that will, maybe that next halving slash halving of uh, farmers, doubling of land could happen in the next five to 10 years, you know, with some of the changes that, that are occurring. So you're going to have more uh, pressure, more tension uh, within farming. And at the moment, farming, well, for, since the post-war period, farming has presented this um, united front. It's been dominated by the NFU, the CLA and the Tories, uh, National Farmers Union, the, the Countryside Land Owners Alliance Association, one of those, uh, association, I think. Um, and yeah, the, the Tory party. Um, uh, Sally Brooks, she calls it the, the Iron Triangle in the, in the British countryside. But I think we're about to start to see that fragment and break down because there is a tension there now between those that own the land and those who are mostly renting the land. Now, in the UK, most tenant farmers will own some bit of land, not all, but they might own a small holding or, or you know, a house and some small, yeah, some acres around it. Um... And they're going to find it a lot harder to keep going because the obviously the rent is a, is a huge uh, amount of their expenditure. So I think that's been held together fairly well in the countryside. That's why we haven't seen a lot of uh, rural protests in the UK for a long time. There's been smaller issues pop up here and there. But I'm starting to see some sort of divide, like not, not a huge one, like a little bit where there's more critique now of the position of, say, the NFU. Um, because farming had gone down this route of professional representation and lobbying and I think a lot of farmers are now seeing that that hasn't worked particularly in the post-Brexit period a lot of organizations including some uh, left organizations too sort of got sucked into this you know sitting around the big table let's have a rational chat let's you know put together a rational plan for the countryside and clearly that's not going to happen and what we're seeing is the you know the interests of agribusiness of processes retailers and larger capital dominating what's going on um, and the UK is mostly going the route of deregulation um, and in, importing food from elsewhere for cheaper. So there are going to be a lot of farmers are going to lose out over the next 5, 10, 20 years and I think the left needs to insert itself in there because these farmers who are feeling those pressures, where are they going to go to explain what's going on and to find alternatives or to find solutions? I think if the left, the left currently is obviously disconnected from the rural for the reasons we've all, we've all just been talking about. So the far right has put itself in there with conspiracy theory, but I think this is a big opportunity for the left if it can come in there with class politics because that is often not really discussed in the rural from even from these more left-wing organisations, there's often a reluctance to discuss class because these slightly more left-wing organisations, they entail a coalition of people where you've got landowners, tenants and people who, who don't have any real position on the land are 
either uh, farm laborers or volunteers on other people's farms, which is like a whole thing there that, that could be explored. So I think if the left can come in with that class analysis, with that explanation of what's going on on that level, because so far, um, you know, looking at Netherlands, and it's not just Netherlands, I haven't mentioned it yet, but there's been protests in Germany, Poland, Spain, Italy, and there's a lot of tension building in Ireland. There's been no discussion of landlords and landowners. And I think, yeah, the, the organisations have done, you know, the NFU and so on, have done a job of keeping all that down. But I, I wonder if there's an opportunity there that the left could exploit. Um, and some of the, yeah, the antagonisms that exist there. So... You, you mentioned at the start that these protests, these um, the actions of the Dutch government have been kind of in, imposed on farmers and, you know, it's not been done very well and it's not been explained very well, you know, whatever. Um, and yet, um, we are going to see that, I think this is a kind of one of the first, some of the first waves of these necessary changes that are going to have to be made as we transition into whatever the new world, the new kind of situation we're going to be in is going to be. And so we're going to necessarily see a lot more of this kind of conflict over transition into a net zero economy, a carbon neutral economy, and even moves towards um, a kind of, I suppose, um, food independence, similar to what, how energy independence is talked about um, today as well. And so there is going to be deep and lasting changes within food production, within farming, um, that you know, are going to encompass the whole world. Um, and we can see this in the way that some of the framing of the protest is like a, a kind of uh, attack on, on net zero targets and, um, you know, GB News is, uh, you know, you sent me a clip about GB News um, really hammering this home. As conflicts around the climate crisis continue uh, and, um, and kind of capitalists trying to resolve an increasingly unresolvable situation with the green transition, how will the far right continue to exploit these contradictions uh, going forward? I'm going to start with actually just the right wing first before going more into the far right. Um, if that's okay. So what we saw in response to the Ukraine war was the NFU immediately came out. I think it was the NFU Scotland that came out first saying we must abandon net zero. We must abandon um, paying farmers and the idea of paying farmers for protecting wildlife, nature, ecology, that sort of thing. We must get back to paying farmers to produce food. You know, it's about this is what is going to be the issue. Food security is a problem. Um, and, you know, the UK does import around 50% of its food. Um, I think around 85% of its fruit and vegetables. Um, we produce a lot of barley, wheat, dairy, beef. Um, so they look straight away the right and the sort of conservative farming organisations and conservative farmers to capitalise upon this um, fear around starvation. I mean, they talked a lot about this. They talk about how the left and uh, environmentalists are going to basically lead us all into mass starvation. And one day they're all going to find out that the farmer is really important because there's this, there is this sense from a lot of farmers that they are hard done by. There's this sort of chip on the shoulder. I might get in trouble with some people saying that out loud like that. But where, you know, the, the people in the city just don't respect and value food enough, you know. And this is why food is so cheap. That, that's one of their core um, beliefs, critiques of the system. 
So the, it's making the job of the far right quite easy because the right is already starting off with this position of um, the, this, this um, intense pol uh, polarisation between the urban and the rural, this need to um, turn back to the national, to close, not to close borders, but to, to look inwards. So it provides the, the ammunition then for the far right to sort of build upon. Um, and yeah, I think that provides them, them with opportunities. Okay, um, let me let me have a quick go at this as well. So I'm going to approach from a different way. Alex, start with the right and then move towards the far right. I'm going to start with the far right and then move towards the right. Um, I think in one way, we could expect the far right to keep doing what they're already doing. So the far right are using things like uh, net zero targets uh, as an excuse to say that a kind of bureaucratic elite is impinging on your freedoms because they're trying to impose this green transition and this green transition isn't really needed and there's various reasons and justifications of why that's not needed right going from climate denialism all the way to something like the issue is not as bad as we think and actually it's going to be solved by like hydrogen within the next five years so we just relax guys it's, we've got it right so i think the far right is going to keep doing that the thing in a way I worry about, and I think if I'm right, I've heard you discuss this when you've discussed your book, right, is that writing it, you became less concerned about eco-fascism and in a way much more concerned, I think, about the kind of liberal center and the right and where that's headed, right? And so that's sort of where, where I am on this. I think the notion of green capitalism and this green capitalist transition is, is a contradiction in terms, that it's, it's an impossibility thesis, but that doesn't mean that we can't live it for a while, right? They're going to try, basically. And the way they're going to try um, will lead to all kinds of quite horrific right-wing right, right -wing outcomes. So I talk about this quite a lot under the umbrella of something like an eco-apartheid regime, where the global north tries to transition towards sustainable energy sources, um, but it does that by extracting wealth and resources out of the global south while erecting borders to stop racialized others coming into the global north, right? Um, I think we're much more likely to see something like that that will gain traction and in a kind of tragic key, right? So like, look, it, you already see this in the Dutch protests. When they're getting rid of um, nitrogen pollution, a lot of the Dutch MPs say this is horrendous. Like we know that this is awful and people are going to lose their jobs, but we need to do it because of the green transition. And in a way, they're, they're right. We've become accustomed to a way of life that is totally unsustainable. The system of farming in the, in the Netherlands cannot continue, right? And so we need to revert that and fix that. But if you take off the table something like a dramatic revolutionary overhaul of property relations and capital accumulation, then you're left with things like um, shutting down a couple of farms, right? That then leaves the door wide open to this far-right reaction. And another, another example I like to think about with this, and I think although the composition of the movements were very different, we should see the Gilets jaunes as, as a precursor to the Dutch protests. So this was a fuel tax, that fuel tax hit rural, again, it's a, it's a rural protest primarily, rural workers and communities who were dependent on their cars, lower income people, the hardest. And it did that because, you know, Macron took off the table dramatic transformations in property or taxing, say, fossil capital, whatever, whatever, even more capitalist, but more radical solutions to this problem. 
Um, so I think the far right is going to continue <laughs> doing what the far right does, and we should expect to see uh, liberals and the right increasingly take these worrying trajectories that leave the door open to the far right. And how that plays out in practice is something that I think we need to be attuned to, but I, it's too early to tell where that's going to go, I think. I suppose in the context of the UK as well, the cost of living crisis at the moment, the left has done a, a decent job of, of kind of framing it in a way that um, is um, uh, kind of in, immunes kind of the, what is going to be a growing movement against the, against the cost of living crisis from far right co-option, you know, don't pay campaign, for example, or um, enough is enough. These, these are very clear demands around um, cost of living that, are, that, um, speak to the kind of I've seem to seem to have captured a kind of broader a broader section of society than what the left usually captures I suppose the 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 war in Ukraine and the kind of subsequent food crisis that stem from that is one example of you know things that are like already happening in places that are not um the first world or the global north or whatever you know famines food crises are regular features and you know the vast majority of the of the world that's not where we are right now and um it feels like we're going to start experiencing more and more these kind of um you know ruptures in our kind of established way of of, of living in our in our societies and we'll always have food there'll always be always be food on the shelves they'll always be able to heat our homes they'll we'll always have um you know the basic means to life and uh, living a fulfilling life and as we transition away from that there is a danger i think and we wrote about this in the book and you mentioned it already of walling up what we have left and like basically saying fuck the rest of the world and i think part of our part of our politics should be a, the, the and the complete and utter refusal of that position um you know, you know an implacable refusal um and I feel like some of the big kind of big kind of movements on the left and intellectual movements on the left in, in the last ten years or so have neglected this proposition and they neglected you know the rest of the world in 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 and the experiences of the people in the rest of the world. Where where can we look to? Um, how can we kind of um, reframe these politics to to something that's more um, climate justice orientated? That's something that's um, that operates on the scale of the whole world? Big, big fun question to end with. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think your, your analysis is totally right, right? I think Alex and I both agree with you. Um, and the way I have been thinking about this recently, uh, just because of a debate, of course, it's a debate I had online, right? But a debate over uh, a phrase from Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. And they have this phrase where they say that the workers should first settle accounts with their own bourgeoisie, right? And I think this phrase gets used to legitimize uh, a particular kind of politics that goes, cool, we don't need to think about internationalism. We, we don't need to think about uh, international connections, international webs of finance or capital flows or uneven ecological exchange until we have boosted the position of our own workers, until, we're, say, we're unionized, right? Um, I think that's the kind of the Green New Deal agenda in the US and the UK. I think it's the kind of agenda, again, that Matt Huber advances in his book on climate change as class struggle. But I think there's another way of interpreting that phrase. And then the politics that comes from it is the bit where things get difficult. But if you're going to settle accounts with your own bourgeoisie in the global north, you should start by recognizing that that bourgeoisie 
is imperialist and has invested interests and controls capital flows and pro uh, resource flows from the global south. So the question needs to be something like, we can do harm to our own bourgeoisie by harming their international as well as their domestic interests. And then you need to think about how you do that. Right. So that's reframing and walking us towards some kind of an answer. I think things like the um, solidarity actions going on in the UK around Palestine at the moment and shutting down uh, the military wing of imperialism is a really important example of this. And I'd like to start seeing something similar happening around uh, food production. Right. And, and how that but how that happens is a question that I don't even think we've we've asked. And it's really difficult as an individual to come to solutions, right? The left is used to coming to solutions as a, as a collective and we hash out and have these conversations. But what uh, dismays me is that we, we don't always, we have, we, we're not really having this conversation. So I, I think I'm just going to cheat and say, we need to have it. Like, what can we do here materially that harms imperialist interests in food production, for example? There are some things I think like asking for uh, producing food, more of our food at home is an obvious, an obvious step without falling into discourses around food security. There's a danger here, and I think you flagged it in your question, that by localizing food production, we do exactly what an eco-apartheid regime would do, which is build security for our own population and never mind the rest of the world, right? So we need to think about how to produce resilient food systems that can feed us in the UK, that can relieve exploitation and pressure on land and resources in the global south without falling into the trap of inadvertently building some of the uh, the kind of apparatus of eco-apartheid and that's a very very difficult thing to think about yeah kai covered a lot of ground there that yeah totally totally agree my my concern is that the the liberal center is um not just open to the lifeboat ethics, you know, of um, Garrett Hardin, but is actually, yeah, not, not just open to back actively supporting that, you know, from conversations I've had, you know, people are, this turn to the local can quite often be like that. Um, it reminds me, you put in your first book, Alex, um, that the National Rally, Marine Le Pen's party, you know, talks about how the border is the ally of ecology. And there are people on the soft left or centre at least that do basically support that through some of the politics that they put forward and some of their projects. So I am concerned about that and how, you know, where, where does that take us 10 years down the line when we've had further climate breakdown and the opportunities then for the far right where a more fertile ground is being provided for them by a sort of naive liberal centre it's not just naive, though, is it? It's the hundreds of years of colonialism and imperialism and the benefits of that and trying to secure some of that going forward through the border, through um, policing, through militarization, and so on. And somehow the left, I think, needs to get into that and offer another alternative like, like you've both put forward. Um, and how we actually find a practical way of doing that is really tough. And as Kai said, we need to even just begin by even talking about it because that's not even happening yet. Um, one idea that Kai and I have had around is how do we find opportunities 
for building more collective or more cooperative forms of food production. So looking at county farms and whether there is any potential to expand that. There has been generally a selling off of county farms across the UK, uh, largely as a result of austerity. But there are some councils that seem more open and some have retained and some have even expanded their um, their portfolio of county farms. So can we can we sort of prefigure some of the ways that we would like to see in the future for the left in the countryside and actually get into the countryside again? Because over the last hundred years, we've seen a massive reduction in the numbers of farm labourers in the countryside and a swing of power from the labourer towards the landowner. Obviously, the landowner always had the majority power, but there were um, there were rural class struggles and strikes going on in the countryside in the early 20th century, and we've not seen anything post-war because there simply aren't... It's too fragmented now in the countryside. You know, you might have two or three people working there, two or three people working there, and how you bring that together, how you would organise, unionise that would be really difficult. Um, but I think somehow the left getting back involved with that, moving towards that, but guarding against quite actively from the beginning, so taking this anti-fascist perspective, you know, of centering climate justice, um, guarding against lifeboat ethics, um, and being very wary of the, of what's being said and the, the discourse and rhetoric around localism. I think is really important. Great. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, thank you both for coming and discussing. It's a really good episode. Um, have you got anything you'd like to plug? Any work you've just got coming out or com- have had come out um, that you would like to flag to people? Um, yeah, so we're working on a piece at the moment around <laughs> on class composition in the countryside in the UK. Um, so hopefully that will be out soon, starting with the question of something like why haven't we seen similar protests in the UK to those that we've seen in Poland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, right? So we'll be working on that. And then if you're interested in other bits and pieces of our work around this, we have a piece in The New Socialist about renewing the agrarian question in, in the global north and in the UK specifically, uh, dealing with rewilding and aristocratic estates and legacies of colonialism. So I really recommend that. And then I, I mentioned uh, our first piece we wrote together. Uh, it was a book review, a long and extended book review of uh, Chris Major's Small Farm Future. And you can find that in Spectre Journal. And that goes into some of the discussion around uh, class composition and Marxist ways of making sense of uh, agrarian class analysis. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, there's some references you could probably crib from that. And I'll post links to both of those. The new socialist one especially is, I think, really great. So thank you for writing it. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, got no announcements. We had the Summer Book Club uh, yesterday from when I was recording it and it was great. Um, look out for the next book club. Yeah, there we go. Bye bye. It's going down and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down and you're invited for what they sell it we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying it's going down it's a digital community center from anarchist anti-fascist autonomous 
anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.